Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, November the 6th, 2023. New month, new week, old theme. We Last month, we did a show, very interesting show, with a man called uh, Vincent Schiraldi uh, on what we called the human tragedy and political shame of America's mass criminal supervision system, uh, focused on parole. Schiraldi is the author of a new book called Mass Supervision. He's a pretty impressive man. Um, he uh, he was um, he was the former uh, commissioner uh, uh, of New York City probation uh, and the correction uh, officer at New York in New York City worked with Mayor Bloomberg so it was a very interesting conversation about the system of mass supervision and parole but it was very much looking down as a public official as a public servant today we're looking at the same subject quite differently my guest is Ben Orson Ben Austin is the author of a, a best-selling book previously about um, a book called High Rises. Many of you be familiar with it, Cabrini Green and the Fate of American Public Housing. Uh, he's a popular podcaster and journalist, and he has, as I said, a new book out called Correction, Parole, Prison, and the Possibility of Change. It's dealing with the same subjects as Sheraldis, but from a very different perspective in terms of the book and his analysis. And he's joining us from the south side of Chicago. Ben, congratulations on the new book. It's out this week. It's already got very favorable reviews, both in the New York Times and the Washington Post. Are you familiar with uh, Sheraldi's book and his work? Of course, yeah, Vinny, Vinny Sheraldi. I'll call him Vinny. Vinny and I travel to Finland and Norway together to visit prisons, uh, part of a, a, a contingent of about 20 people to see comparatively what they do in other countries and sure yeah and maybe we can come to that trip later in terms of comparing america with the rest of the world am i right ben that your books are about the same subject probably fairly similar conclusions in many ways and yet looking at this thing very very differently in terms of the nature of your books yeah i would i would make a distinction is that Vinny is looking what happens after people get out of prison primarily and, and talks about mass the supervision state of everyone who gets out on probation or a mandatory supervised release uh, my book also looks at what happens before people get out of prison when they're trying to get out and they're trying to appeal to parole boards and uh, i think you're also right that there's a somewhat different approach i look at two individuals who were both convicted of murder in the 1970s and really their saga of coming up for parole for 40 years of trying to appeal to a parole board to give them a second chance. Yeah, and the two characters that you deal with in your in your book are um, uh, two men, Veal uh, and, and Henderson, Johnny yep. Veal and Michael Henderson. Tell me about these men. I, I know you did over 100 hours of interviews with them. Yeah, yeah, well, Johnny Veal, is somebody that I wrote about in my first book that you mentioned about Cabrini Green. Uh, rises. Because the crime that he was convicted of happened in 1970 at that public housing complex. And it was really a sensational case. 
It transformed the public housing development. It, it was really thought of as a critical point in Chicago's history. So I investigated it and I wrote all about it and about its after effects. And the truth is, you know, Johnnyville was 17 when that happened. And uh, I wrote about the case, but I didn't, I didn't think to interview this person who was, you know, 50 years later, almost still sitting in a prison cell. And to be honest with you, uh, you know, it didn't really cross my mind that, that this, this boy from 1970, 50 years later would still be sitting in a cell and it's just somebody that I could reach out to. And, and that's how the American criminal justice system works. We're supposed to forget about people. Um, but when that book came out, High Risers, somebody reached out to me and said, hey, this guy, Johnny Veal that you wrote about and this crime in 1970, he is still sitting in a cell. He's sitting in a cage. Uh, he's innocent of that crime and he's coming up for parole consideration. He's still going before a parole board. And so I had to investigate what was going on. I was, I was intrigued and I reached out to his lawyer. I reached out to him. I visited him in prison and I started going to parole hearings. And that's really how I got into this second book. And you asked about, you know, the kind of person he is. Um, he was in his sixties when I met him, you know, he had sat in a prison cell for 48 years and, and he was an extraordinary person. I mean, his accomplishments in prison spoke for themselves of all the things he had done, dynamic personality, captivating, um, and really just wanted to be free, wanted a second chance. And tell me about Henderson. Michael Henderson uh, is somebody who is preternaturally positive, uh, uh, you know, really believed the entire time that he would get out of prison, that he would get a second chance. I what, talked he, about what was his crime, Henderson? When he was 18 and living in East St. Louis, which is a, a river town along the Mississippi on the Illinois side of St. Louis, uh, he shot another teenager. Uh, they were outside a club and he was asked to, um, this, this teenager pulled up and said, would you buy me some beer inside? And when he, he bought it for him and came out and said, uh, he wanted a tip, like a couple dollar tip. And when the other boy refused, Michael pulled out a gun. Like, uh, like a lot of teenagers today in these in these terrible decision moments. And when the car jolted, he shot him. Uh, and he had been in prison uh, for 46 years. Uh, and he had also been coming up for parole and had made a life for himself in prison, which is a powerful thing to say. Um, if we ask for rehabilitation, if we ask for people to reform, he is somebody who had certainly done that. Uh, he, he and And like Vinnie Schiraldi's book, I also follow him about midway through the book, he gets out of prison, Michael Henderson. And, and then I'm able to follow what it means to be out on supervision in this, kind, in this mass supervision state. And all the ways that you know, it works against this idea of a correctional system. We call our prisons in the United States correctional facilities. We're not that interested in corrections. And so here is somebody who was paroled and, and you know, officially in that sense corrected and the system was still working against him was trying to trying to send him back we're speaking with ben austin the author of a very very important new book correction he's one of america's leading investigative journalists he's the author of already the best-selling book um, critically acclaimed high rises uh cabrini green and the fate of american public housing and he has a new book out uh this week correction parole prison and the possibility of change 
Ben, I'm sure you've done a lot of thinking about this particular subject, America and correction. What is it about America? And I, and I can't explain this. You, you, I'm sure you can much better than I can. What is it yeah. about America? Is on the one hand, it's the country of reinvention. It's the country of the supposed American dream. You come here, you make something of yourself. And it's the country of many chances, whatever Scott Fitzgerald said. It's the country of second and third and fourth mm. chances. We all come here to invent and reinvent ourselves. For better or worse, America is a place that doesn't remember. It's a forgetful place, which enables people to always start again with the clean slates. But the one exception to all this seems to be, or maybe, maybe there's more than one exception, but the one glaring exception is the criminal justice system. How do you explain that? Yeah, I mean, that's really well put. And I'll even add to that, that, you know, I write about parole in Illinois. Illinois abolished parole in 1978. So anyone convicted after that time does not get this opportunity for a second chance. And so the people I write about were all convicted before then. And Illinois is not alone. 16 states in the United States have abolished parole. The federal system has. And every single state has reduced parole eligibility for really a small fraction of their prison populations. They've made, during all the tough on crime legislation of the past 50 years, they've made many crimes ineligible for, for this second chance. And so, yeah, it's really powerful what you say, like why? Um, you know, I'd be remiss not to say that, that race and racism mm. are not a huge part of it. That, that the, who do we not give a second chance to and who have we filled up the prisons with, you know, uh, disproportionately uh, black men and 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 brown men and uh, and and there's something like, about uh, like Johnny Veal, of course, like, like Johnny Veal. And there's something about um, casting people as as beyond as beyond you know any sort of second chance or any sense of rehabilitation of you know thinking about people as monsters as ex as existential threats. Um, which is, which is, yeah, it's in many ways, not having a parole system seems, as you said, un-American. It's like a, this second chance seems like part of any criminal justice system and really like any society and any religion, right? There's something about atonement or a chance to, to for mercy. Um, yeah, and, and, and I'd say that, you know, when you talk about America, what we do now is also not what we did 50 years ago. So, so this year, mass incarceration turns 50. We've been doing this since 1973, that the prison population has just escalated. And so we had about 200,000 people in prison when that started, when, and actually when Johnny Veal and Michael Henderson entered prison. 200,000 total in every state and federal prison in the United States. And today, there are about 1.2 million. And of them, we have 200,000 alone who don't have a second chance, who have either life sentences or sentences so long that they're the same thing. So we have 200,000 people, the, the actual size of the entire prison population in 1970, that we believe are abominable, that we believe are the Timothy McVeighs, these monsters. That's absurd. But it's also important to say that, that it's a relatively recent phenomenon, this change. And it's, um, we've normalized it over these past 50 years, but it's something that we have to keep on recognizing as a, a relatively recent phenomenon and extremely abnormal. Ben, uh, you talk about 1973, I think, when Veal and Henderson uh, went to prison 50 years ago. Nixon was still president, of course, back then. Um, 
the Republican Party was in the process of radical transformation. Still no Reagan. Do you think over the last 50 years, this dramatic transformation of the criminal justice system is perhaps the most corrosive thing that's happened in America? Is this the real reflection of what some people call neoliberalism or the the radical right or or, or populism within the Republican Party? And and can we can we locate and, and I use this word carefully, maybe you'll correct me. Can we locate the blame on the right with the Republicans? How much responsibility did the Democrats have? So certainly in the 1970s, and and interestingly, you know, 1971, after uh, the Attica uh, prison uprising, there was this kind of critical reassessing in America in a a way very much like after the the murder of George Floyd. And and the the sense of people in prison and, and, and thinking about them as human beings and what prison conditions were like, there was really an examination. And, and Nixon was president, even Nixon then, his administration was thinking about closing prisons and thinking about alternatives to prison. And this, just like in our last several years, there was extreme backlash to that um, and a sense of uh, mobilizing people around fear. And certainly this was this was an act of the Republican Party. I mean, and, and, and also I'll have to say that um, even in the Johnson administration before Nixon, there was a move away from great society programs, war on poverty, and already thinking about some war on crime. So it wasn't just a, even then, a condition of, of Republicans. Um, but it really was supercharged by Republicans then. And as you said, um, this became a, a Reagan battle cry as well, a sense of, you know, who do we fear? We fear people on welfare. We, we, we fear people in prison. We fear crime. And the sense of this kind of, you know, they're almost interchangeable and mobilized people. Um, but the truth is, in response to what you said, that these ideas went very mainstream. And so by the 1990s, you have the, you know, crime is on the rise. You have a crack, crack epidemic. We've suddenly reached a million people already in prison for the first time in our history. So 200,000 starting in 1970. By the 90s, mid early 90s, we have a million for the first time ever. And during the Clinton administration in 1994, they passed this, you know, the biggest crime bill ever in our history, which is going to ratchet up. Uh, incarceration even more, demand clamoring for more. And, you know, our current president, uh, Joe Biden, is also at, at the forefront of that, of saying that we need more cops, we need more prisons, we need more certain and longer prison sentences rather than looking for alternatives. Um, and so I don't locate it completely on the right. It is completely gone mainstream. Uh, all of us, me, you, everyone, anyone listening, anyone watching, we have been steeped in this culture for the past 50 years of, of thinking that uh, a, a, a prison sentence of life or 60 years uh, or forever, a death sentence in prison, seeing men grow old and die in prison is somehow normal. Uh, other countries don't do this. And how much, uh, Ben, you know, whenever you read the newspapers, certainly certain kinds of newspapers and television stations, there's always talk of increases in crime, and it seems as if this is a country paranoid about crime. To what extent did some of the increases in the prison population reflect increases in crime? Are they connected in any way? At, at sometimes yes, and sometimes no. And that's the answer that you can track. Uh, you know, at some points in the '70s, and and even you know through some the '80s, that increase of crime and an increase of of uh, incarceration rates, and then as uh, crime precipitous, 
precipitously drops in the 90s, incarceration still skyrockets. There is no connection. There's no correlation. So up and down. We, we go up and up with incarceration and, and crime goes up and down. And so in the end, there's not really a correlation. There's a sense of fear is what you're saying. And um, what happens, and I write about this in the book, because one of the things I realize is that parole is this window onto the entire criminal justice system. At the back end of the criminal justice system, you go to a parole hearing and you have to revisit everything that came before it, you know, all the way back to an arrest and the trial and then these decades in prison and all of this sort of hysteria that you're describing. Um, but then actually on a policy level, a history of sentencing, the sort of the, the backlash against uh, parole itself, you know, changing these laws is also this, this history that you're describing, um, which is an embrace of longer sentences to really see that this is, this is a pivotal point. Um, we, we put these decisions, we, you know, on the right, mostly Republicans didn't want to, didn't want to trust either judges or parole boards to be tough on crime. So the kinds of uh, sentencing laws we have now, uh, mandatory minimums, truth in sentencing, are really the products of politicians, of state legislators, state legislatures. And for politicians, there's always uh, a political downside to appear soft on crime. And to be tough on crime, you don't get dinged for. And so the, the sentences just go up and up and up. And it's easy to respond to fear and, and a moment where people say we're in danger and to press that button again and again and again. And even if it doesn't really track with any research or data. We are speaking with Ben Austin, the author of Correction, a very important new book about prison parole and the possibility of change in America. Uh, I want to thank uh, Liberties Quarterly for supporting this show. It's an excellent new quarterly journal of culture and politics. All our guests will get an annual subscription for free. I'm going to run a short ad for Liberties, and then we'll be back with Ben to talk about what we can do to make American American prison uh, criminal justice system fairer and more just. So we'll be back in a second. News, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with, uh, we are speaking with Ben Austin. There he is. Author <laughs> of Correction, Parole, Prison, and the Possibility of Change. He's also the author, I put the wrong uh, book up, of High Rises, another very important book. Uh, ben, you mentioned before the break the role of race. Your your book has already, as I said, been reviewed very well in the New York Times and the Washington Post. And reviews of these Times books often uh, bring up the new Jim Crow and Michelle Alexander. You, you, you talked earlier about the role of race. How central is race in all this? Is it any coincidence that the narrative of the American prison, the criminal justice system was dr dramatically transformed in almost the immediate wake of the, the, the civil rights advances of the 1960s. 
Yeah, no doubt about it. There's a sense of of control as as society is changing, as there are these challenges to the, the the social order, to the racial order, that that incarceration and prison are another form of control, and unfortunately, and that these policies of constantly ratcheting up sentencing laws, of 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 making incarceration more certain for most offenses, which is really a new phenomenon in the country, that for many offenses, for many crimes, we found alternatives to incarceration because incarceration is the most extreme example of taking away somebody's liberty. It's And so uh, we, we incarcerated more people for more crimes for longer periods of time. And and the way you do that is you, you make people out to be uh, monsters um, that were fearful, a kind of Willie Horton character, that there's this, this threat out there, often a figure, a, a black threat, and uh, it makes these, these laws easier to make. I mean, you know, I point this out in the book, Andrew, but, um, you know, we have these, we have these laws of, um, you know, named after crime victims, you know, Marcy's law and so on. And every single one of them is named for a white victim. Um, and, you know, if you look at who the victims are of crime in our country, disproportionately, uh, they're mostly black and brown. Um, and we don't, even in our imagination, don't, don't think about other you know, groups that aren't white as the, the primary victims, which would also change how we think of the perpetrators. People, crime is committed within usually the same neighborhoods. Um, yeah, but there's, yeah, there's an investigation of, of the victims' rights movement in the book, and, and it really is a, a racialized story. When I was talking to uh, Vinnie uh, Schiraldi, we talked about the the privatization of the criminal justice system, the fact that local uh, administrations uh, were making money out of this system. How much has this come up? And again, it's perhaps no coincidence that this has taken place over the last 50 years with yeah. the birth of what some people at least call neoliberalism. Is there a connection here? Does this play a role in, in your book, which is a much more up close, personalized um, look at, at the system? In some ways, less so. I mean, also, you know, private prisons themselves are, are a very small percentage of prisons in the United States. That's sometimes a misconception. But in terms of what Vinny is talking about, there may, there's so many services within prisons. And certainly on the end, once people get out on the supervision side, that those are mostly privatized. And there is a, a, a you know, a, an incentive to, you know, to not do what we, you know, the name of my book, which is corrections. Like we call our prisons correctional facilities. We should be invested in corrections. Um, but there's this incentive not to do that. Um, and, you know, a financial one that, that especially on the back end, once people get out on parole, how much of the book you you spent a lot of time talking to uh, to Veal and Henderson? How much of the book did you talk to the people who control the system, the officers, the, uh, the 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 people in charge of this system? Yeah, I went to parole board hearings for years and talked to as many parole board hearing uh, parole parole board members as I could, uh, and you know they range in such uh, dramatic ways from former. Uh, sheriffs and and criminal prosecutors to social workers and and people who are trained in restorative justice practices and you know they're all in, in my experiences uh, the the people I interviewed 
were all invested in doing a good job. They just had such different perspectives on the world. Um, some people who really thought 40 years in prison uh, was not a lot and that you had to look at the original crime. The crime was the thing to focus on when really the role of a parole board is everything that happens after the crime. Um, a, a judge and a jury deal with the crime. You know, your job at that point is what happens afterwards. Does, does, does this equal freedom in some way? How has the person changed? Um, how have they used their time in prison? Uh, you know, so, so those other variables. But um, yeah, I mean, that's, their, their perspective is fascinating because uh, to think about how, how do we, what do we think, right? I mean, the, the role of a parole board um, also fascinated me because in the end, they're asking this giant question, which you and I are circling, which is like, well, what is the point of prison? What's the point of a punishment? And they're, they're in, in many ways exploring that idea. And what, what's so troubling in our country, when we lock up a quarter of the world's prison population in this country alone, is they don't really have a good answer for that. <laughs> you know, like, how could we not have a good answer? <clears throat> you know, that, that we call it correctional facilities. We're not really that invested in rehabilitation. Then what are we doing? Uh, you know, do we think that we're just uh, keeping people out of, of uh, this, the neighborhoods and the society when they're at their most dangerous? Well, we know that most crimes are committed uh, when people are between 18 and 25. So what's the point of incarceration from 25 to 35 or till 45 or 55 or 65 or 75, um, which is what we're doing. The, the fastest growing prison population now in the United States are, are elderly people. Uh, so why do we have geriatric prisons if, if those people are not a threat? Um, we don't really know this. And, and it's, it was fascinating to talk with board members and to see them kind of struggle even sincerely with, with, with all this confusion. What about the traditional institutions of transformation, Ben, in America, particularly the church? Ha, have they conveniently, I'm guessing that the evangelical movement hasn't always shown a great deal of interest in this, perhaps for racial reasons. But did you come across in your studies and in the writing of this book, church people who are invested? Because it's come so close to many of the original principles of religion, of, of reinvention, of, of, of rediscovery, of personal transformation. Really well put. I mean, and, and uh, it, you know, to think about what atonement is, what mercy is, uh, there is a very spiritual side of this. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was talking before about the 1970s, the church, especially things like you know the, the the Society of Friends and Quakers, were deeply involved in in prison reform then, and and those groups are still somewhat involved, but um, but less so. Uh, you know, I don't, I I, I think somehow, uh, you know, there are many groups. I just it's I, I don't want to exclude the, the work, the great work that that many people do. Um, I did not see uh, church groups advocating at the parole hearings I went to um, and, and looking at individuals had been, who had been cast as monsters and really seeing their humanity and, and, and fighting for them. I did not see that so much. In writing the book and in all these conversations you had, particularly with, with Veal and Henderson, what did you learn that you didn't expect that surprises you? I'm guessing you came in relatively progressively when it comes yeah. to all these 
assumptions most of us have and, and you still maintain that. But did you come to some conclusions? Did you learn stuff that you didn't expect? Well, I mean, I've also been teaching in prisons uh, in, in Illinois. And I think just that work alone of, of seeing people as real people inside and not as these abstractions, like you, it, it changes your views. I mean, just talking to individuals who have been in prison for 25 years and seeing firsthand that they're not teenagers. I mean, that they're whatever is being imagined at the time of the crime and the conviction, uh, just like all of us, radical change has happened. I mean, it's just so apparent when you do this work. Uh, and uh, yeah, I went into prison to teach last week and there was a, a, um, uh, a law school had brought in a few students and it was just, it just crossed my mind that every law school should, should require this, that you have to take at least one class inside mm. a prison. You would just, you know, this is the end point of so much of the work that you should know what's going on. Um, I, brought up, I brought up the thing about the, um, the, the victims' rights movement uh, I, I had not known that history before, that, that a victims' rights movement, which started uh, really in the 1970s as protections for women who were, who were victims of crime, both, both domestic abuse, partner abuse, and rape, um, and who felt like they were being re-victimized by the system itself and not believed, or when they, they actually did go to court, they were more in danger or ashamed, um, that this developed into these grassroots groups like, like, like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, and then really got taken on by, by conservatives and the right and became this powerful, powerful tool, not to ask for, for protections for victims, but really more keeping people in prison and, and tougher on crime laws. And, and you know, by the Reagan era, uh, Ronald Reagan is actually extolling, he has a, actually a victim rights month that he talks about. I mean, that this is, this is the, it's such a powerful political tool to, to evoke victims of crime, who again, who I said are almost you know, exclusively white in their imagined sense. Um, and then the people who are gonna be punished by these new laws are disproportionately black and brown. Um, that was a history that I did not know. Um, yeah, and other things I just, uh, you know, really, really Andrew sitting with this idea that what we do now is, is a relatively recent phenomenon. You know, 50 years is a long time, but not so long. This isn't like the entire history of our country. And that what seems normal now is not normal. It's abnormal. Um, it's an aberration both globally and even in our own history. And to just sit with that more and more, that it gives some hope for change. And, uh, you know, that, that we're steeped in this culture, that we, we just have to challenge it over and over again. You mentioned that you uh, went on the road with Vinnie Schiraldi. You visited some Scandinavian countries. I hope you're not going to tell me that we can all become like Denmark, who I'm sure have a very just yeah. criminal justice system. But can America learn something from other countries? It's always so ob easy and obvious to make that point, but it never seems to happen, and maybe it's unrealistic. But are there, are there criminal justice systems overseas, which aren't Danish or Swedish that America can learn from. Yeah, we went to, we went to Finland and Norway. So yeah, at least things out of Denmark. Yeah. And, and, you know, those, you just go inside the prison and, and you see the body language of, of incarcerated people and guards talking to one another. And they're, they're talking as you and I are talking right now. And that there's not, it's not immediately set up as an adversarial relationship and that my job as a guard is just to police you. 
I'm actually there as a correctional officer, meaning my job is to make sure that you succeed in a way within some notion of corrections. And that from day one, the prisons are set up um, to focus on re-entry. And, you know, when people are, are recidivate, when they're arrested again, there's not an extra, uh, you know, uh, add on to a sentence because because somebody is a repeat offender. The idea is that we're, you know, this sense of trying to get people to return to society, both because it makes sense financially, but also in terms of public safety. Most people are going to get back to come back. I mean, I talk about these 200,000 who won't, but there's still a million people who will. And what do we want? What do we want in terms of those what's going to happen to them? Don't we want people to be to, to have dealt with some of the problems that, that got them sent to, to prison in the first place. Um, and so there's a, such a logic to that. Um, and I, I point this out in the book, but Finland, right around the time that we get, get drunk on, on punishment in the, the 1970s, had the exact same incarceration rate as the, as the United States, they had the, one of the highest in all of Europe. And they reassessed. They, they had become, so they were connected to the Soviet Union or before then, and they, they wanted to be more like their Scandinavian neighbors. And they had to think of like, what is it, what, what do we want? And they changed so many laws and the laws weren't really radical. They were things like, um, you know, a suspended sentence for, mo for many crimes that aren't incredibly violent uh, and, you know, shorter terms and, and things that, that we do in various cities, but, but thinking about, the, the 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 all of them together really started to change the laws and at the same time they also invested heavily in social services uh in in the social safety net and you know this is at the same time that we in you know get harsher on punishment we eviscerate the social safety net and those two things hand in hand create more crime um you know they they they, they make people turn to crime and they you know, those countries invest in people even when they get out of prison because they don't want to have to pay for them to be back in prison. I do find that as a model, there's some hope in that, that a, a society can change. Now, as I, you started out at the beginning, like what's the thing we, we have that they don't have? Those are pretty racially homogenous countries. Um, and, and many of those countries with, with immigration are, you know, are reconsidering some of these things, not radically in the way we are, but there's some, there's some retraction. And so, we have to deal also with with our history of, of race and and you know it feels less promising at this moment right now where the country is um but but there's a a, a way to reflect on these and to look at this and to to think about you know i mean this is why i titled the book correction too because this is this is the thing that needs to be corrected yeah, and I guess you, you you might rethink the book. Is it's maybe not a book about the criminal justice system. It's a book about America. Correct. It's a book about us, one hundred percent. Yeah, it's really it's, it's about, about American society, right? Our values. Correcting America from a sense of Old Testament to New Testament justice. Um, so, so finally, uh, Ben, um, what can we do in the very short term? I mean, a lot of the stuff you talk about are quite ambitious philosophical or structural changes? What can happen in the short term? What, what are one or two issues that can be um, addressed by people who are watching or listening, who care yeah. about this stuff, that they could vote for their local representative or senator or get involved themselves? Well, I'll say two things. And one is, one is that um, 
you know, people in prison, as we've talked about, have been made into these monsters who are deserving only of eternal punishment and even more than just taking their liberty away, they, they are, are taken away of things like healthcare and, you know, intellectual stimulation and other things. And stories like this, and as many as you could approach them where you have to engage with people as human beings are really valuable. And this is this, what I'm doing is part of that. Um, but there are many of those kinds of stories and to make those connections and to spread them around. That's, there's real power in that of, of not seeing people as abstractions and then having to wrestle with this. Two, uh, your question is, is really apropos because there are laws in Illinois and across the country to expand parole eligibility or to return it in places where it was eliminated. Um, in Illinois, which I said it was abolished in 1978, uh, in New York City, um, in, in all across the country, expanding parole for, for elderly, um, people who have served a certain amount of time. Um, but these laws in Maine and in Virginia, um, all across the country, there are groups advocating and politicians who are pushing these laws. Um, we should have more second chances. Right. And the elderly argument seems the most self-evident. I mean, should anyone be in jail after they're 70 years old? Certainly, certainly not in terms of, of, of any sense of, of criminal intent. We know that there are you know, statistically, the chance of people at that age committing an, another crime are, are near zero. And so, and the, the cost to have geriatric prisons is immense, you can imagine. Mm. And so in that sense, yeah. Um, but those laws, you know, they're being debated all across the country and being expanded in California where you are. Um, this kind of advocacy changed some of the laws around parole um, that, that made it um, a, more merciful. I mean, a simple law in California where parole boards could no longer reject somebody solely based on the original crime. They had to come up with another explanation, some other reason besides what happened that the court. Right. It's, it's, it's mercy versus it's collective mercy versus collective revenge, really, when it comes down to it. Yeah. 